You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. everyone and welcome to episode 65 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with the wonderful Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, Valerie, I'm in a flap. Why are you in a flap? Because I'm, because I'm hopeless, because I'm trying to packing. I'm going to Queensland to do four days oh, of school visits yes. and um, some Reader's Cup Challenge stuff. Ooh. And getting myself out the door is like the biggest challenge of gargantuan proportions I can even think of um just trying to organize I've got to organize everyone else as well so you mean your family yes that's Mm. right so it's not just me and you know making sure I've got my underwear Valerie (laughs) it's also me making sure everyone else has got underwear for the week while I'm gone (laughs) yes yes this is an issue oh yes but anyway so I'm um I'm I'm nearly there I'm 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 gonna it's gonna be great I'm looking forward to getting there wow well done Mm. well I am not as in a flap as I was, say, two and a half hours ago. Okay, that's uh, good. You've deflapped. I've deflapped because mm. I decided to cook this rather challenging Thermomix recipe. Oh, Valerie, <laughs> the Thermomix. <laughs> Thermomix. Okay. It's not sponsored for anyone who's no. who's, who's wondering. It's just Valerie. It's okay. just me and my new toy. And yeah. so I just – because I'm one of my favourite dishes in the whole wide world is Hainanese chicken rice. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And I've always been brought up to think this is important possible only real amazing cooks that you know where the recipes passed down from generations can cook this recipe and I have to say tonight I nailed it so I'm no way. super super excited I'm you just, nailed it or the thermomix nailed well, the it thermomix nailed it but that's okay okay <laughs> but I've never cooked it before in my life never thought it was even possible but um I'm very excited and now I'm drunk on food but, oh, and <laughs> but, power, obviously. <laughs> but another reason I am very, very excited is because I had the news that uh, an Australian Writers' Centre graduate, Belinda Williams, has had her second book, oh. yes, in her contemporary romance series, released by Momentum, which is, of course is an imprint of Pan Macmillan. And last year they released a book called The Boyfriend Sessions by Belinda Williams. And after that, because it was it obviously went well, they signed her to a further three books in the series. So oh. her, her second book is called The Pitch. Wow. And yeah, very exciting. So, so exciting. Congratulations, Belinda. Congratulations, Belinda, because she did the um, Popular Women's Fiction course with the wonderful Lisa Heike, who's been on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And Belinda says uh, she was an inspiration and as well as providing lots of must-have theory, she gave very practical advice too and we still keep in touch. So very excited for Belinda having her second book published. Go, Lisa. Well done. Yes, go, Lisa and Belinda. Fantastic. 
But let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging. I have a number of links for us this week, Al. Okay, I'm ready. Hit me. Hit you. Because I've got nothing. (laughs) You've been busy packing your underwear, clearly. Takes a long time. Yes, it's quite an effort, I know. Um, (laughs) So... The first one is news that um, uh, that we have um, f- from Colloquial and Yaffa Media. They've combined to set up what they're calling Yaffa Custom Content. And essentially, this is a joint venture between uh, J. Walter Thompson and Group SJR, a division of Hill & Norton Strategies. Mm-hmm. And it's going to uh, end up with a, an actual dedicated content Uh, content agency, which I think is just interesting because it goes to show that content marketing and content agencies are becoming increasingly popular as brands are realising that this is really important. And I think this is great news for writers and journalists because it basically means that there's more and more opportunity, perhaps not through the traditional channels, but Mm. more and more opportunity to get paid for your writing. That's right. And in, in an instant like this, you would be working with brands. So it's a, yes. an advertorial style writing. It's yes. an advertorial style writing. So, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it employs many of the same principles as journalism. That's right. But with always the um, understanding that there is a client at the end. At the end, mm. yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's, mm. I mean, I just think the more opportunities that are out there for writers, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But onto something rather different, mm. HarperCollins has announced that they have uh, started a thing called Book Bliss. So you'll be able to find it, and we'll put the link in the show notes mm-hmm. at harpercollins.com.au slash bookbliss. But this is particularly useful for readers. Now, it, what it is, is you get daily ebook deals and perks. So it's kind of like, you know, where you've had, you know, Groupon or some of those daily deals sites. Yeah. But this is very specifically with ebooks from HarperCollins. And, right. you know, you can get, you know, like 80% off some ebooks. Wow. And yeah, it's just a bargain. If you're the kind of person who's going to commute, like you're on the train or, you know, you catch uh, public transport somewhere and you often read, I suggest that you sign up to a site like this because it could save you heaps of money. Well, that's right. And the other interesting thing about it, I think, with those kinds of deals is that they put books in front of you that you may never have actually ever considered exactly. before that. And so you can find, you know, new favourite authors by trying their ebooks at, you know, at a reduced rate, which I think is fantastic for authors as well. Absolutely. And that's a really good point because I was talking to um, my hairdresser the other day. Right. Or okay. my hairdresser's assistant, and he has to commute from Newcastle to Sydney, which is, as you can imagine, quite a long way. Mm. And he, that's all he does. He reads his Kindle. And he was saying that all he does is downloads all of the free uh, ebooks, but I would hazard a guess to say that if you're only downloading the free ebooks, you're possibly missing out on some of the quality books out there, which have yeah. been, you know, mentored and vetted and mer- nurtured by great publishing houses like HarperCollins. So if you're getting eighty percent off, it's practically free anyway. That's right, and it's definitely worth a try. Mm-mm-mm. Got nothing to lose, people. Exactly, hmm. and for those of 
for those people who like nonfiction, because, you know, a lot of HarperCollins is, I mean, they do some nonfiction, but a lot mm-hmm. is uh, fiction. For those people who are great readers, so it's a bit of a reader theme for these two links. Right. People who like nonfiction, and I love nonfiction. Yes, there's we know. A, <laughs> there's a new site called 29 Minute Books. 29 Minute Books. Yeah. I'm not okay. entirely sure why they've decided on 29 as opposed to 30 but anyway um also great for your commute basically these are non-fiction books that range from you know china's economic journey from mao to superpower mm. to history of films to um you know leadership and management theory to coaching for small business to becoming Ooh. a successful blogger to get better at singing yes yes there you on go. the train you can on see the yourself train. Doing that. yes so it's the sort of thing that oh, you know what about be a better wife oh, totally <laughs> in 29 minutes learn how to be a better wife there's something for everyone there is. <laughs> 29 minute books <laughs> oh valerie here's one for you cook that you are there's one there a 29 minute book about cakes in cups Oh, my God. That sounds like you. We did that the other day in the office. We did um, mug cakes. How'd you go with that? M-U-G, mug cakes, where you just put it all in a mug and you microwave them. Yeah, were they good? Yeah. I'm not very discerning when it comes to food. (laughs) When it comes to cake. (laughs) But they were great. We all had them. Well, there you go. You can maybe buy this book and learn to make some different ones. Yes. Eggs and cups. But, you know, I think that um, we're reading more. Well, I like to think we're reading more than ever before. You know, people have often thought about the death of the book and, you know, that sort of thing. But the reality is that many of us are still commuting. Many of us now can so much more easily read a book on the commute because you can just download it at the press of a button. Yeah, that's very true. Mm. It does worry me a little bit that um, the thing that I think, it's the whole attention span thing. You know, people keep saying that, oh, people aren't reading as many books because the attention span is disappearing. And, like, I don't know that the 29-minute book is going to help (laughs) with that particular issue. But having, speaking as someone who has now taken – I reckon six months to read Wolf Hall by oh, Hilary Mantle. Oh, you're reading Wolf Hall. Oh, it's an ongoing saga. Yes, so, yes. But, you know, the thing I find interesting about it mm. is that I really enjoy it while I'm reading it. Mm. Like if when I pick it up and I read it, I really enjoy it and I get completely absorbed by it. But the minute I put it down and walk away from it, yes. it feels like hard work to go back. Really? So I don't, yeah. So I don't go back for weeks, and then I go back and I read it again, and I remember why I like it so much. And why do you like it, it so much? Oh, the politics of it. Oh, and the politics the, of the story. Of the story, and I think oh. the the point of view is really interesting. Like it's a very very deep point of view. Yes. Um, but the thing that makes it difficult is everybody's he, yeah. he, 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 and it's, you know you've got to think really hard about who he is, which right. he we're talking about at the time. Oh. So maybe that's why it feels a little bit like work. Yes. But I'm very very interested in that particular period of time, and I do love the good a good political yes. thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, and of course, politics were a hallmark of that particular period of time. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting. I like. I, I really am. I, I couldn't not say that I wasn't enjoying it, but it feels like hard work when I stop. Wow. My friend Katrina, who's also a writer, um, is obsessed with Wolf Hall mm. and she's finished it and thinks it's awesome. And I made mention to her the other day that I happened to have the whole 
uh, TV series taped, mm-hmm. and so she's invited herself around <laughs> to binge watch one weekend. Well, I've started watching that as well. Oh, and yeah. So, um, and? so the builder and I have watched the first two episodes of that. Yeah, I'm, again, really enjoying it. Yes. But I'm not rushing back. To, I'm not binge watching it. I'm not yeah. rushing back to binge. No, okay. I don't know. Well, let us know. Yeah. Listeners, what have you, you read think? Wolf Hall? Talk mm-hmm. us through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ping us on social media or email us. Yes. Podcast at writerscentre.com.au or, yeah, on social media. And do let us know what you think of Wolf Hall. Because it is not a 29-minute book. <laughs> I just want to point that out. <laughs> All right. Now, well, where are we? Well, moving on to oh, yes. something that now you will know and mm. some regular listeners will know that I'm slightly obsessed and fascinated with such subjects as Bon Jovi. Mm, And, um, you know, words and where words come from. Yes. And um, I have a slight fascination with Latin. Mm, They're also similar, these things. (laughs) (laughs) One of these things is not like the other one. Keep going. What else? So I have... um, uh, I have a link which kind of combines almost all of these things. Well, perhaps not Bon Jovi. There's no Bon Jovi in this. <laughs> I'm sorry, but there's not. I thought Unless it was rock stars. No, no. The other thing that's right, I have a fascination with, and some a, a small proportion of listeners may remember this, but I have a fascination with tax. <laughs> you are really no. drawing a long bow here, but no, okay. I do. I've read the entire Tax Act. You and have not. Yeah, and most of the guys I've dated have been tax accountants. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Oh, Valerie. So, now, I thought this was relevant because I wanted to talk about the Magna Carta. And may, many people may remember that the Magna Carta is what was signed all those years ago in at Runnymede. You've probably learned mm-hmm. that in history at school. And... Um, uh, it, I thought I would bring it up because June was when it was signed 800 years ago, to be precise, mm-hmm. and it's June now. So if you're listening to this in the future, we're recording this and releasing this in June. <clears throat> and I thought it was particularly relevant because that means in Australia anyway, we're coming up to the end of the tax financial year. <laughs> <laughs> stay with us, people. <laughs> Honestly fascinated by this. This was actually a link in the age and it's nine absolutely fascinating facts about the Magna Carta. But one of the things that I was particularly interested in is that the Magna Carta makes reference to the word scutage. I see that. Which is S-C-U-T-A-G-E. Scutage. Well. You say, Alison, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, in fact, it's one of the very first references to tax. Oh, Scootage. it all becomes clear. Yes. See how she see how she drew that together, people. <laughs> Finally, we're at the point. <laughs> Scootage is one of the medieval feudal words for taxes. So I know that many other people in the world would not be as fascinated by this little fact as I am, but if you're out there and you're listening, please do let me know that you're there because, you know, we can Yeah, please, please let her know that you're listening. <laughs> do you know what I find more interesting about this? I'm just going to move you right along from taxes. Okay. That Clause 7 of the Magna Carta uh-huh. did something significant for women, and this is quite an interesting thing for me because um, uh, it, it's something that comes up in Book 3 of the um, – 
of the Mapmaker Chronicles in a funny sort of way. But Clause 7 says that a widow after the death of her husband shall forthwith and without difficulty have her marriage portion and inheritance. That is a massive thing for women because until that point, they didn't inherit and they became kind of baggage. They either had to go and marry some other bloke to look after them mm. or they ended up living in their brother's house, you know, and looking after all the children or, you know, whatever. So I find that really, really interesting and I never knew that, Valerie, so I'm so glad that you pointed <laughs> out this document to me. Now you can all sleep. Scooty decide. <laughs> That's all right. right. Goodness gracious. I've me. enhanced all of your lies. Yeah. So <laughs> I will move on then since clearly you and possibly some of our listeners are making fun of me right now. You oh, yeah. take over then. Because you are living on a prayer. What can I say? <laughs> I am going to take over and I'm going to share with you a little update that I saw on our good friend Natasha Lester, who is, of course, an author and a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. Mm. And she shared with all of her Facebook friends, um, which is a good reason why it's an excellent thing to follow authors on Facebook, hint, hint, um, a book that she is reading at the moment and it's called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life um, by Danny Shapiro. And she put this up on Facebook with the words, God, I love this book. I think it belongs on all writers' bookshelves. So I just wanted to share that with you and I'm putting a link to the book in the show notes because if Natasha feels that strongly about this book, then I think that everyone should have a, it's worth having a look at it. And one of the things that she particularly liked about it was a quote, and this I have to say this did actually speak to me quite well as well. Yes. Um, and the quote by, from Danny Shapiro is, writing, after all, is an act of faith. We must believe without the slightest evidence that believing will get us anywhere. Oh, and I yes. think that that is something that it's very, very true. You sit down to write and you have to believe that A, you're going to get to the end of it and B, that maybe somebody's going to want to read it. So I think that, um, anyway, I, I just wanted to share that recommendation with everybody, Danny Shapiro via Natasha Lester. So the link will be in the show notes to the book, um, which is called, um, God, I've just completely lost it, Still, Still Writing. The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. Fantastic. And the, that wonderful website, Brain Pickings, has said one of the year's best books on writing and creativity. So thank you, Natasha, because I'm going to get that based on yes. that recommendation. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So let us move on to the world of blogs. And I just wanted to share a very quick link because many people have asked me, and I'm sure they've asked you as well, Al, where mm. you can get free, like royalty-free mm. pictures that you can use for your blog. Yes. And there's many, many sites that you can. All you need to really do is Google royalty-free pictures. However, we also remember a couple of um, several episodes ago now, we shared that fantastic post by Max Abella, which listed yes, 10 of them. Yes, absolutely. So that's worth having a look at. Absolutely brilliant. And we'll repeat that again in the show notes. Yes. Um, however, one that I do subscribe to regularly is mm. unsplash.com. Mm. And they're awesome, beautiful shots. And it says free, do whatever you want, high-resolution images. There's 10 new photos every 10 days. So with the 10 new photos, usually I kind of pretty lo- much love at least seven of them, which is a pretty good strike rate. And um, you can subscribe yeah. so that it just gets delivered into your inbox every 10 days. So every 10 days I just open and I download them all or I pick the seven or however many, you know, that I'm in love with and I just add them to my library and I use them, you know, in my blog post. So it's fantastic. I can just see motivational quotes all over most of these. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Look at that notebook. Gorgeous. Yeah, Beautiful. Re- really nice. Perfect. 
But let us move on to our writer in residence this week. Now, our writer in residence is Nikki Pellegrino, and I loved chatting to her because she is uh, an author who has written so many books now, like maybe eight. She's probably on an eighth novel or something. And Mm -hmm. um, she is uh, from the UK but lives in New Zealand. And, yeah, she has written books like The Italian Wedding, Summer at the Villa Rosa, When in Rome, and um, her most recent book is One Summer in Venice. And her books always have something related to Italy, as you can probably tell from her last name, Pellegrino, (laughs) but also she's obsessed with food. So, um, anyway, we spoke As are you, apparently. (laughs) Only today. <laughs> but um, let us uh, hear from Nikki. And so let's um, chat to her now and we'll see what you think. Okay. Thanks for joining us today, Nikki. Hi. Now, for those who are not yet familiar with your book, your latest book, One Summer in Venice, tell our listeners what the book is about. So it's really a story about looking for happiness. It's, a, it's about... When you know your life is perfectly good, you've got a good job, you've got a nice family, but you're having a fit of the blahs and you want to feel more joy every day. The main character is a chef and she lives in London. Her restaurant's had a bit of a rubbish review and that tips her over the edge. She runs away to Venice and she spends her time there trying to come up with a list of the 10 things that really make her happy, not the sort of universal stuff that make all of us happy, not family or holidays or, you know, sunny days, the things that lift all our spirits, but her own personal recipe for happiness. Now, I understand that the book was born after you read The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Can you tell us how that fed into this? Well, she did a slightly different thing. She had a bit of the blouse. She realised she wasn't feeling everyday joy even though her life in New York was perfectly good so she set about trying to find more joy in everyday life and she talks about how it's not the things that you do once in a while that make you happy it's the things that you do every day but she did it very much without leaving home Mm. I thought oh this is such an interesting idea because you know it's a first world problem obviously (laughs) but (laughs) you know most of us we're not living in war-torn places and we've got plenty to eat and we've got shelter but you can still have those moments where you're not exactly depressed but you just realize that you should be enjoying your life more and I thought her book Gretchen Rubin's book was very interesting and the way she kind of um, analyzed herself in a way and came up with lists and action plans and researched the whole concept of happiness. Mm. So that was sort of my jumping off point. I thought, well, we all feel like that sometimes. It's perfectly normal. It's not something you can medicate yourself for. It's not really serious, but happiness, we all want to be happier, don't we, really? Mm-mm. So you were born in England, but you I'm talking to you you're in New Zealand because that's where you live. Uh, but as many of your books along with this one, are set in Italy. Tell us about your connection to Italy and then how you research your settings and bring them to life. So my father is Italian Mm -hmm. and he met my mother um, in the late 1950s. She hitchhiked to Rome with a bunch of her girlfriends across Europe. She was quite daring at the time Mm. and she met him there. He He was doing his military service and he was this very handsome Italian man in an Air Force uniform. And she ended up marrying him and taking him back to the north of England, to Liverpool, which is where she was from, and having children. They're still there. They still live in Liverpool. 
Um, when I was a kid, we used to go over there to see my dad's family. He had three sisters and they all had lots of children. So we could drive there, obviously. You know, you get the ferry and off you go, drive across France. It wasn't um, a big expensive trip. It was very doable and we stayed with family and um, they live in quite a um, horrible place, really. It's this little town outside Naples. It's not your picture postcard Italy. Right. Um, and, and as kids, we didn't speak very good Italian. The food was very foreign. You know how your memories from childhood are always those extraordinary things, mm. often the slightly um, traumatic things? Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think for me, going to Italy was so strange. And we were, um, me and my brothers are all really, really tall ginger and quite pale skin so in this small italian town we just literally stuck out to the extent that little old ladies in black would come out of their houses and sort of hiss and cross themselves and run back in because oh. <laughs> it was quite back then it was quite a um you know people did have television but there wasn't obviously the internet people were not as global and as exposed to things and it was quite a backwater so that was such a huge memory for me of my childhood and when I started writing all of those summers in Italy um were what kind of I guess flavored my books there's always a lot of food in my books and my aunts were all amazing cooks my father cooks so we would go home and he would recreate the things that we'd eaten when we were in Italy and all those layers of memories kind of came into my books I think. Mm. So now living in, that's your childhood you know memories and your connection to Italy then, now you live in New Zealand, what do you do to research your books and bring these settings to life in you know current day kind of thing? So when I can I go to Italy, Mm. Um, for one summer in Venice I went and spent a couple of weeks there on my own because that's what my character does, Adolorata goes on her own, so I thought it was really really important to do that. Um, I also have set a lot of my novels in a house called Villa Rosa, which is in the south of Italy. And that's based on one of my father's cousin's places. We've been to stay there quite a lot. So actually, the book I'm writing now, that's where that's set. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yes, so it's um, very much a... Sometimes you get to go over there, but when you live on the opposite side of the world, sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. Why do you live in New Zealand? Why? Oh, I met a man. I met a man. <laughs> I, um, I came over to, I went on this big trip when I was in my late 20s. I went to Australia, Sydney to see a friend there, and then came to Auckland to a friend's wedding and met the man that I'm now married to. So There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know. Holiday romances, they do work. Yes. So <laughs> you obviously also have a love affair with food. Apart from your connection to Italy, food just infuses many of your novels and feature, you know, it features prominently. I mean, your, your main character is a chef in this one. Yeah. Have you always been a foodie? I think so. Um, when I grew up in the north of England, it, food there was not very nice. And my yeah. father, yeah, you know, it was, you had to go to a chemist shop, a pharmacy to buy olive oil, and it was <laughs> pretty backward. And my father really was dedicated to creating these lovely recipes, and he got his sisters to send him instructions. And sometimes we'd bring stuff back with us in the car when we drove home from trips there. So I grew up really appreciating the difference between good and bad food. And now I'm a little bit obsessed with it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm quite greedy, really, to be honest. And I, I think Italians, food is enormously important to them. Mm. In the south of Italy, where my father's family are from, and 
parts of my books is that people often don't have a lot of money, but they will be growing vegetables and they'll have some chickens and, you know, they might have a pig that they kill and turn into ham. That still all goes on down there. So I don't think you could write a novel about Italy without having lots of food in it. And actually the Venice one was nice because Venetian food is quite different. Food is still very regional in Italy. Mm. So I got to try all these new dishes and write about those. And that's for me, one of the most fun parts of going to research a book. <laughs> All in the name of research, of course. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, your main character, Ada Lorata, or Dolly, Dolly, was actually born out of another one of your novels, right? She didn't start off here. She's been in two of my novels. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been in one called The Italian Wedding, which is really the story of her sister and her parents. And another one called The Villa Girls, which is a story of four friends who go on holiday every year to somewhere different. Um, But she never really had a starring role in any of the books. And she's quite a big character, quite spiky and quite a lot of fun. So I always thought one day I was going to give her a book of her own. So One Summer in Venice isn't a sequel at all. The idea is... If you've read the other books, you might pick this one and start to recognise people in it. But if you haven't ever read any of the other books, it doesn't matter. This one stands on its own. And I just like that idea. Maeve Binchy used to do it. You remember her mm. book set in Dublin? And mm. you would you would sometimes come across a character and think, oh, hang on a minute, she's mm-hmm. in that other book. It's like meeting an old friend, I think. Mm. Did you always have this planned for Dolly? Or did, was her backstory always in your head? Or did you decide to create it? So this, is, this isn't her backstory. This is um, her backstory is the other two books, really. Yeah, but did um, you always have planned to do this when, when you were writing those other two books? Oh, look, I barely have anything in life planned. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I did always think I would like to um, put her in a book. And then one day I was doing a book event and a woman actually said to me, I think you should give Dolly her own book. Mm. And I thought, wow, the You've got to give the readers what they want. But it certainly wasn't something I planned. I don't really plan very far ahead. And and my ideas are often very unformed until they actually start being put down on paper. I'm not a big plotter. You know, I think, and I do think it goes back to what you're like as a person. I'm really not a very planny person. Mm. I could possibly tell you what I'm going to do next week. But if anyone tries to make me plan any further ahead than that, I get a panic attack. And... (laughs) So I think that's what I'm like with my books, whereas other people I know who are very organized and they, you know, run very, very efficient diaries, they would be plotters. That's, that would be the way they would be comfortable working. I don't think one's right or one's wrong. I just think it goes down to your personality. So let's talk about not plotting then. What, when you write your novels, and maybe use this, was a, this one as an example, yeah. what drives the journey of the character or where the book is going what seed of the idea did you start with and you know so you must have started somewhere and then how does it emerge the rest of it so with this one I had the character and I knew her and I had the place I knew I wanted to set a book in Venice and I had happiness and the fact that I knew it was going to be a first person novel completely told by Dolly Mm. and that it was going to have this list of the 10 things that made her happy going through as as she discovered them the readers would discover them so I sort of had the structure and I knew more or less how it was going to end but not completely Mm. Um, I changed my mind about that as I was writing Uh, so the things I didn't realize were I knew I wanted to have an older woman character who was um, fun 
and a little bit naughty. I was quite inspired by Ari Seth Cohen's book, Advanced Style, which is full of pictures of these incredibly glamorous women in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I wanted this glam older woman. I didn't know she was going to forge in and, and become such an important character in the book. And in some ways, probably the most likable character and the one whose story is most important. She slightly um, pushed her way in. She's a very big personality and she wasn't going to take a back, back seat in the book. So that was something that took me by surprise. And the other thing with not having a complete plot is sometimes you really get stuck. Like with um, the book before that, which was called The Food of Love Cookery School, I got my characters stuck having coffee in a piazza for what appeared to be weeks. I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't get them to leave. And it was because of, I sort of knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't know how to get there. Mm. I saw a quote once from a writer and he described it like, like driving in the dark with your lights on high beam. Mm. And I, I feel that that's a little bit what, I, what my writing is like. I sort of know where my destination is, but I can only ever see a little way ahead as I'm going along, mm. which um, is it can be a bit scary because, um, you know, you sort of think it would be nice to have it all plotted out and know where you were going next. But at the same time, it makes room for the characters to surprise you and for good ideas to come along. And I guess for the story to stay fresh because I'm telling it to myself as well as to mm. the reader. Now, this is your, is it eighth novel? Is yes. Yeah, goodness yep. me. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Um, can you take us back then to when you first started writing fiction and why you decided, oh, I might try writing fiction now? It was always something I wanted to do. Um, I, as a kid, it was the only thing I was any good at at school. I used to write these terrible free verse poems that were just, you know, shudderingly bad, but I had lovely teachers who encouraged me. So I always kind of had this idea that I wanted to be a writer, but my dad was a factory worker and we didn't know people who were writers. Mm. I didn't really think that it was something that a person like me could do. So the only way into it I could, I could see was journalism. So that's what I went off and did. And I, I worked on magazines in London. And then I moved to New Zealand when I was 30 and worked on a weekly magazine here. And I still always thought someday I'm going to write a novel. And then of course, it never happened because you never get home from work and think, I know, I'll sit down in front of my computer now <laughs> and write. You think, I know, I'll pour myself a glass of Chardonnay and I'll yeah. watch TV. <laughs> so I just kept saying someday, someday. And then one day I was at work and I got an email from someone I knew to say that um, a woman who I had interviewed several times, she was a New Zealand broadcaster, had been diagnosed with a brain tumour and that it really wasn't good. And she was only in her late 50s, this woman. I think it was just, for me, one of those seize-the-day moments where I thought, I mean, I was still only in my 30s at that stage, my late 30s, but I suddenly thought, really? You just don't know what's around the corner. I saw this woman a few weeks ago, and she seemed completely fine, and now, you know, bam, she isn't. So actually that night I went home from work and I started my first novel, Delicious, oh. that very night. And wow. I, I know, and I kind of said to myself, okay, I'm going to write this, I'm going to complete it, and I will try to get it published. But if it doesn't work, then I will just say, okay, well, I did it, you know, yeah. and I'll put it under my bed in a shoebox and I'll forget about it. And I just, that book was probably the most fun to write because ignorance is bliss. And <laughs> plus, I, I didn't have a deadline. So I just potted away you know, evenings, weekends, holidays, a little bit here, a little bit there. And that's what I always say to people, actually, when they say I don't have time to write. I say, really? You know, you only have to write 500 words a week. You might not have a novel very quickly, but you will have a novel 
eventually if that's what you want to do. So I was incredibly lucky with that book. I did manage to get it. I got it published in New Zealand to begin with. And then I found an agent in the UK who took me on. But between the book appearing in the UK and, you know, me having finished it, there was an enormous amount of rewriting. I had an incredibly good editor who... I mean, I thought my book was good, but as it turns out, it was completely rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a lot of rewriting and a small amount of sobbing over the keyboard before before my editor was happy with it and felt it could be published in the UK. And I look back at that now, I realise she taught me to write. Because I've never... I never had any creative writing classes. I just, you know, was always a reader. Yes. Read lots and lots of books. Um, she showed me, she taught me how to write, basically. So if you're, you're used to being a journalist, which is much shorter form and it's much more instant gratification in a sense, you can, you know, write yeah. a story and then such a quick turnaround if you need to. Was it hard to get into, to sustain the interest and to, you know, um, keep yourself going on such a long project? I think what's hard about it is the amount of time it takes and that you can't just go hard for a week and, you know, write a book, Mm. that you do have to make time. I also still work as a journalist. So for me, time is the big issue and and just diarying days and saying, no, I can't have a coffee with you and, you know, no, I can't do this other story. I'm having a writing day. And then sometimes you'll do that and you'll only write 500 words (laughs) when you really needed to write 2,000. So so for for me, that's really... It's that, that knowing that that deadline is coming and it might seem quite a long way away, um, but it really isn't. So, when... I, But also I write, I've got a quite a pared down writing style. No one has ever said to me, you need to, cook, to cut 2,000 words from this book. Mm. You know, they always want more. And I think that goes back to the journalism, the fact that I am just good at writing taught sentences. Yes, yes. So when you are writing a novel and you're in the throes of it, do you, do you take time out of your journalism? Do you, like, what kind of writing routine do you have? If you can talk us through how that novel gets down on the page and how that fit around, fits around the rest of your life. So I juggle a bit because I've got some regular things that I do and I can't just stop doing them. Mm. And, um, you know, fiction writing is not the most lucrative of pursuits so I think it's quite important to do other things but also for me writing is very solitary and journalism is quite nice because it takes you out into the world and you tell other people's stories and sometimes you'll do things that will inspire what you're writing so I like doing the two things but it does mean I don't really have a routine so my, my ideal day is you know get up early get into it um and work and work and work and work and then have some sort of a break where I do perhaps move, um, <laughs> maybe walk my dogs or um, go out to see my horses. I've got horses that live about half, half an hour away. Um, and that time is really brilliant for thinking. And often you'll write bits of the book in your head. It's quite important to have access to somewhere to write it down. You know, there's nothing worse than being out on a hack on a horse half an hour up a hill. <laughs> you think, oh, no, that's exactly what this character needs to do. And <laughs> so desperate not to forget it but that thinking part is really really important and I think often when you're just sitting staring at your your laptop it it kills the ideas and it kills the creativity whereas if you even if you go and I don't know sometimes I'll just go and put a load of washing on which isn't very glamorous but just breaking that connection with my desk for a moment and doing something a little bit routine and humdrum frees the mind up 
And often then I'll come up with a whole plan of what I want to write the next time I get to sit down mm. and do it. And then I, you know, would jot it down and just even just a few words jotted down, we'll bring it all back. And that's always great. Another tip someone gave me, actually, Ian Rankin, the crime writer who's got the same publishers as me, he told me, never finish a day's writing, completing a sentence, finish halfway through the sentence. <laughs> Because he said, you'll know how you were going to end it and then you can just pick the thread up straight away instead of flopping around. And do you do that? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I do because it's really easy to, you know, you'll fluff, you'll think, oh, no, I'll just look at some pictures for inspiration. Oh, and I'll, write, I'll light a scented candle because that will make me feel good. <laughs> None of those things really get the book written. I oh, know, I have so many scented candles as a result. <laughs> <laughs> scented candle theory is a good one. So apart from the time-consuming nature of writing a novel, what else is the most challenging part of the writing process for you? Oh, um, I think the mo- sometimes I just don't feel like I can write, mm. which possibly really? sounds a bit insane, but sometimes I think... I don't even know how to construct a sentence. And I'll have a, a, I I guess the doubt, you know, that you do have moments of doubt. And I suspect a writer who didn't have moments of thinking, I can't do this, I'm no good, would in fact not be be a very good writer. I think doubt is an important, if uncomfortable, part of the writing process. What do you do to get over that doubt? um, Sometimes I whinge to my friends (laughs) who say, oh, you said that last time. Sometimes I will just pick up a book that I know is brilliant and just read a little bit of it. And I won't be able to write like that writer. For instance, um, Kate Atkinson, I think, is a, just a brilliant writer. Author, her prose is wonderful. Sometimes I'll just read a couple of paragraphs of Kate Atkinson and I'll go, oh, that's right, that's what good writing is. Mm-hmm. And obviously I can't write like her, sadly. But um, it just, I don't know, it gives me, it just reminds me of what it is, of, of how a sentence should be structured. I know it sounds mad coming from someone who has, ends her entire life writing, but I, I think that the doubt thing is, I guess, just a crisis of confidence. It's mm. a sort of, does my bum look big in this moment in my writing process? <laughs> now, you said you're not much of a planner, uh, but when it comes to creating your characters, do they live in your head as they're being formed or do you write down aspects of their history or certain elements of you know their likes and dislikes and just to get to know the character at all I used to do that actually and then I found I never referred to them so (laughs) they, they, they do live very much in my head and they're very real to me and sometimes um you know I'll go somewhere I think if I went back to Venice I would be looking for Dolly and Coco the fabulous older woman I would be imagining them being in places um that I'd put them because they just become quite weirdly real you know I'm talking to my imaginary friends here um and I, I think about them a lot uh sometimes I might write things down but yeah not very often to be honest can you give us an idea of from concept, well, from, from the decision I'm going to write this novel till your, the end of your first draft, can you give us some idea of the time frame or the gestation period of that? Well, I went through a phase of writing a book a year. Mm. Um, so it was probably a probably six to eight months between the first idea. One summer in Venice I took a bit longer over, actually. I think I just felt a bit tired and also... I didn't want to repeat myself, you know, I mean, obviously everybody is going to have some things that 
the themes that run through all their novels. But I want I wanted to kind of feel that there was fresh stuff in there too. Mm. So that was more of an eighteen month project, and I enjoyed that more um, than I than I do when I've got a really tight deadline. And so, what are you working on now? I'm working on a book. It's set in Italy. Oh, I'm surprised. <laughs> this one, it's actually set back at Villa Rosa, the house where lots of um, it's one of these houses that people pass through and it's really, really beautiful. So I've set it back there, but it's completely contemporary and it's about a character who hasn't appeared in any of the books and she is um, middle-aged mm-hmm. and she has had a job she absolutely loves that ends through no thank, no, none of her fault and she sort of is a bit stuck. So she decides to take an adult gap year and she does a home exchange these things are quite mm. big now. Mm. Um, and so she swaps her London apartment with Villa Rosa and she decides she's going to spend a few months just kind of getting to know a place and the culture and the people and and sort of have a little bit of time out from her life before she decides where she's going next. So it's, wow. it, it's a little bit the same and a little bit different. When can we expect it? Oh, I hope sort of about this time next year. Okay. I've been working pretty hard on it, so but you never know. You know, that's the thing. You work on something for a year by yourself and then you send it off to your editor and you never quite know whether you've produced a work of genius or the worst novel ever written in the history of the world. <laughs> and um, finally, uh, for listeners who are, um, you know, hearing this story and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I want to be there one day. I want to get to my eighth published novel. You know, <laughs> maybe they even want to get to their first published novel. What is your advice to them? Have a comfortable chair. <laughs> because you will be spending a lot of time sitting in it but also I'm sort of what I said before you know it is really easy to procrastinate and I completely get that I'm the world's biggest procrastinator but at the end of the day the difference between writing a novel and not writing one is sitting down and actually doing it and I think it's really important to write the kind of book you like to read I've heard people say I'm going to write a Mills and Boone or I'm going to write Chiclet but if that's not what you actually enjoy it's not going to seem very genuine and the readers will know that. So, um, yeah, I, I keep wanting to write a crime novel because I think it would be great mm. to have action and, you know, blood. Mm. But I actually don't really read those books. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so get a comfortable chair and write what you want to read and definitely pick up One Summer in Venice by Nikki Pellegrino. Thank you so much for your time today, Nikki. Thank you. Great interview, Val. Thanks. And I think that what we've got also for readers is we actually have a giveaway of Nikki's book. Hooray. So um, if you're interested in getting a copy, uh, make sure you go to writerscentre.com.au slash Venice and all the details will be there. It's, you know, pretty fun competition. And for those of you who are interested in getting books, we have a book giveaway just like this every single week. Just make sure that you are signed up to the newsletter. So go to writerscentre.com.au slash news or just, you know, go to the Writers Centre website and you'll, you'll find a way to sign up to the newsletter and you'll be notified every week of all the fantastic book giveaways that we have. Fantastic. There you go. So, let us move on to, we got a really good, uh, interesting question from um, Tegan 
from South Australia. Hello, Tegan. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for sending your, your question through. So um, Tegan has said that at this stage I am unpublished and feel like I have a great opportunity. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll just backtrack because the question is about a social media presence. Mm-hmm. So she's saying she's unpublished and she says, I feel like I have a great opportunity to establish a social media presence with a clean slate. Mm. But this just makes me scared of stuffing it up. (laughs) To complicate matters, I already have a personal social media account on most platforms, but they're mostly centred around my passion for dogs. However, I do plan to write nonfiction and memoir dog books. So the audiences I have already created are still important for those endeavours. So my question is, if you were to establish your social media presence over, how would you do it differently? I know Alison will say, keep your name the same. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks in advance and thanks again for your podcast. And that's from Tegan in South Australia. And uh, she actually has a business called dogconsultancy.com.au. So take it away, Al. Oh, goodness me. Well, you're absolutely right. I would say keep your name the same across all of those um, different platforms that you have. Um, Would I do anything differently? I don't think so only because I kind of made it up as I went along and I think that worked really well for me. It's like it was, I, I built a very organic community out of just being myself and doing my thing mm. and I think that that's probably a pretty good way to um, find the people that are going to be most interested in what you're going to say. Yes. Um, the fact that you want to write uh, dog, you know, nonfiction and dog memoir and stuff and you've kind of got a dog presence going as you are yeah um is a massive bonus so i wouldn't want to be changing too much to lose that brand that you've already created for yourself um so i think i would perhaps you know put it in my own name maybe because you're not going to write books as dog consultancy are you so um i'd probably put it in my own name and carry on as you are in many ways what would you do valerie I 100% agree about putting in your own name because um, I think one thing you can do, Tegan, is look at the leaders in your industry. So many people will know Caesar Milan because he Mm. is, you know, like the dog whisperer on Foxtel and he's got a huge following and he tweets under Caesar Milan and he has 810,000 followers. Um, Similarly, Jackson Galaxy is the cat whisperer on Foxtel and he tweets under jackson galaxy but there is also a a twitter account called my cat from hell which is his television show on on cable but here's the interesting part jackson galaxy has you know when he tweets under at jackson galaxy he's got seventy five thousand followers but my cat from hell has only got 1200 so i think that kind of answers your question tegan do you know, Tegan, do you know what she does? I'm just reading her website. Tegan, I'm so impressed. Mm. She matches up people with rescue dogs Aww. and helps them to settle into the family and helps them to, oh. We love you, Tegan. Is, we love you, Tegan. Yeah. You totally have to do Absolutely. some little, some books about that, some training yeah. stuff. I could do some help with my dog chewing everything. So if you've <laughs> got any tips about that, feel free. But, yes, I think that um, putting your name on things and continuing with the, you know, the obviously the kinds of stuff that you're doing mm. um, is the best way to build your brand because that way people look for you and that's that's um, what you want when you want people searching for your books. 
Absolutely. And one day you're going, you you may decide to change the name of your business, but guess what? You're probably never going to change your actual name. No, that's right. Mm. And if, if you build a brand around yourself, then the books can change with you and people will go with you. But if you build the brand around one book or around one business, um, then it makes it very, very difficult to change down the track. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Absolutely. That's all the stuff. So hopefully that answers your question, Tegan. Now, Mm. if you have a question you'd like us to answer, then please do email us podcast at writercentre.com.au. But in the meantime, what are you doing in the coming week, apart from making sure you pack your underwear? Well, I'm I'm going to be in Queensland talking to, I think, uh, uh, lots and lots and lots of of kids about the Mapmaker Chronicles and about um, writing in general. And... um, and then I'm going to come back. I've got visitors all the weekend, and then I'm going to be looking forward to Monday. I think. <laughs> do you, when you travel, yes. do you have time to write? And I don't whether that's writing your novels or writing your freelance feature writing stuff or whatever um, writing that you get paid for. It depends on the on the trip. This particular trip, probably not, because I've got quite a few. I've got evening things to do as well. Yeah. Um, but I. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, I'm actually at a point right now. I've just, I, I'm. It's a good point. I've just finished several projects that oh. I've been working on, so I've, everything's kind of like sealed off at the moment and sent off to my agent. So what I could do is think about starting something new. Oh. But what I think I'm going to do is actually work on some pictures. I think I'm going to work on some pictures for, um, uh, for freelance articles. So I think I might spend a few days just faffing about, seeing what's around me, reading magazines mm. and then hopefully come back with some ideas for some freelance articles. So that's my, I think that's my current plan. I actually love that period when you're thinking about the ideas and you do immerse yourself in reading magazines mm. because it's sort of half indulgence and half, half work. research. Yeah, half yeah, research. That's right. And I, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it too because I haven't done it. F- I haven't actually done it for a very long time. Like I've been mm. so busy writing books and um, and being quite immersed in in a whole range of different projects for the last probably twelve months mm. that I, I really do need to. Like I absolutely need to reintroduce myself to a lot of different magazines because I haven't had a good look at them for a while. And it's it's a really big mistake to think that you know what a magazine is because the last one you read was 12, you know, that you know what it was like 12 months ago. Because 12 months is a long time in magazine land. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, there you go. Mm. What about you? What are you doing? What am I doing? Well, I will, you know, apart from reading Thermomix recipes. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) And to be clear, this is not sponsored. Also, actually, in reading a whole ton of magazines because I have also, you know, my journey is sort of mirrored yours at the moment. I've come to the end of some really big projects. I love, there's nothing I love better than sitting in the winter sun with my magazines and just you know, losing myself in them. But I also love doing that at the moment and in a sense need to do that in the moment because um, we have some wonderful people who have enrolled in magazine writing stage two at the Australian Writer Centre. And the thing that excites me the most is that every single week that we have been running this course and in the weeks it only finished a couple of weeks ago and a new one is starting soon but um in the weeks uh following the end of the course i have opened the weekend papers and every single week there has been somebody who who 
uh, has an article in there that has been a result of one of their assignments. Yeah, I know. It's been amazing, oh, hasn't it? Just fantastic. I opened the paper on the weekend and there in Body and Soul in the Sunday Telegraph or the Herald Sun in Victoria um, was an article uh, by Libby and that was an assignment and you know the week before as well. So I'm loving it, but I'm also loving the fact that it gives me a great excuse to indulge in my favourite magazines. So there you go. Like you needed an excuse. Like I needed an excuse, I know. I, I guess it's something that I've always done because when I was 14 years old, I got a job at a newsagent and that's where the obsession began. And, you know, the news agency let me take home magazines for the night and bring them back the next day and I've been obsessed with magazines ever since. But anyway. Yes. Let us move on because you need to go and pack your underwear for your Queensland <laughs> Stop trip. Talking about my underwear, people will think we've got something weird. <laughs> you going brought on. it up. Well, we might end up with some kind of censorship from you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. But uh, where do we find you on social media, Al? If people want to get in touch. Well, you know, as Tegan pointed out, I didn't get myself the same name across all the things. So um, I am at Al Tate, T-A-I-T on Twitter, and I am Alison Tate Writer on Facebook. And you will find me at always at my website, alisontate.com. And check out Alison's website because it's awesome and has lots awesome. of incredible tips for writers. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo everywhere. And um, <laughs> oh, <rub it> in. <laughs> we love hearing from you, so please do let us know what you think. If you have 30 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because that helps us in our rankings and we read every single one of them. So thank you, everyone, for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.